Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live, talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. Hey, welcome to the show. It's uh, a Tuesday. Tuesday. I learned how to say Tuesday when I went to acting school in New York. Um, I had a speech teacher there who was just a, a cartoon character, but uh, she she got me to say Tuesday, and I have ever since. Tuesday. Just saying. Uh I must have been saying Tuesday. <laughs> that was incorrect. She actually got me to say a number of things, um, changed the way I say a number of words. But Tuesday is the one that sticks in my head uh, the most. Uh, it is a Tuesday, uh, June 25th, the last Tuesday in June. Uh my sister is unable to be with us today. She's she's being a grandmother and uh, looking after a uh, her adorable grandchild. So uh, she cannot be with us. So it's just me, and I'm I'm sorry if that is a disappointment to uh, to any of you. Oh, where to begin? Uh, I mean, we could begin re- like really seriously <laughs> with the ludicrousness of uh, of what Trump has has done with Iran and uh, the ridiculous corner he's painted himself into. It, it's just, I mean, countries are actually mocking us. Uh, the Response to his latest sanctions from Iran are just mockery, uh, and and mockery that uh, many of us here are in agreement uh, with. Um, so that the president of Iran, you know, can can say, the White House is afflicted by mental retardation, and. Um, you know, you say, well, I don't know about mental retardation, but definitely some mental Ill- illness, which is different. Uh, uh, the it can it can say that uh, the president's actions are outrageous and idiotic, <laughs> and we would agree. Uh, it it really I I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm no geopolitical expert I'm just somebody who reads a lot and uh, it's just so clear that what Trump is doing with Iran is just insane it's just insane he pulls out of the nuclear agreement that we and other nations had with them that was by all accounts working and then he he says yesterday, and Iran has to stop uh, nuclear trying to get nuclear uh, weapons. Well, first of all, the problem wasn't nuclear weapons with them. It was like enriching of uranium, which is first step. But the reality is, is that that is part of the agreement he pulled us out of. <laughs> I mean, they already agreed. And then he pulled us out. And then he says he wants to talk to him. But he puts sanctions on their chief diplomat. I mean, this this is not only the gang that couldn't shoot straight. This is... Uh, this is the Keystone Cops. This is, uh, Im- well, God. But I repeat myself. I, I, it's just, you know, I don't know what to say anymore. Is there anything left unsaid? Or shall we turn to something else, like uh, the latest uh, rape accusation and uh, Trump's response to that? Here it is. I'll quote it. 
I'll say it with great respect, said the president. Number one, she's not my type. Which begs the question, if somebody has been accused of rape, to say she's not my type sort of suggests that, well, it's not that I'm against raping. (laughs) It's just I wouldn't have raped that one. The on any given day the list of things that anyone can see by opening a newspaper or just, you know, flicking on any um any aggregation of news from any place. There are so many stories that in any other time pre Trump would be so huge <laughs> would so blow up a presidency with and and because of that he keeps nothing touches him i mean stop and think of remember all of the attention that was paid and the histrionics about joe biden hugging women right That is something Biden did in public (laughs) because he didn't mean anything bad. He did it in public. And all hell broke loose. Donald Trump uh, is on the receiving end of his something like 23rd accusation of, uh, of rape. And... Nothing happens. I don't know. Well, yesterday I was talking about the other extraordinary horror of what's happening to the children on our border. And, um, you know, the kind of good news, I guess, is that because of the uproar, the... uh, Trump administration has taken the children, most of them, out of that uh, facility where they, some of them, I, the report today was that uh, some of them had not bathed, been able to bathe in three weeks, were wearing clothes that they had traveled in, they were not given adequate food. Babies had no diapers, had no care, no beds, concrete floors. And the only way we found out about this was uh, legal action. Uh, There was a a suit in a long-running case trying to get information about what is happening to these kids And uh, the visit by a group of lawyers representing some of the best law schools in the country, a group of lawyers, because a judge's order said they were, this group of judges was allowed to go in and take a look. And they did that. And just a few days later, the children have now been moved to a better facility, supposedly. I don't know. I don't trust these guys. They've been moved from that facility So, who knows what else is happening? 
I mean, the ACLU and other uh, other parties are spread so thin these days. How many cases can they can they have against this administration and uh, attempting to get hearings um, and information from uh, this inhumane inhumane administration? I mean, some of what's happening here is. If it were happening during war, they would be called war crimes. So this is uh, violations of uh, internationally perceived rules of um, how one handles detainees. People who were detained kidnapped perhaps, detained by the Taliban and others have said (laughs) that they were given toothbrushes by the Taliban. They were given soap and the ability to keep themselves clean. They did not starve. They were fed. And I really do think we've become numb, inured, exhausted, but it's no excuse. As I was saying yesterday, no excuse. Um, just getting off all that for a bit. I. I last night watched that um, that CNN Apollo 11 documentary. It had a lot of, uh, it was all just archival video and audio of that historic uh, flight of man, literally, stepping foot on the moon and returning. And it really was mind-blowing to see how they did that. (laughs) You know, we take it for granted now. Oh, yeah, I know. Oh, yeah, I suppose we got circling Mars, Saturn, doing this, that, and the other thing. And we just, again, we're oblivious. But to watch that documentary brings you back to the awe that we felt in 1969. I mean, the whole world watched. And the gutsiness of televising it. First of all, the astonishment to most of us that they could. But that that we were able to witness these men, as they did this, shows a great deal of, stop and think about it, courage on the part of NASA. What if there had been, as there have, a catastrophic disaster? I think that was uh, redundant. A disaster is catastrophic. But I was, I was reading a, a bunch of um, book reviews because a ton of books about Apollo 11 have come out, uh, it being the 50th uh, anniversary. And uh, it is interesting to be reminded of who we were where we were at that time. 1969, height of Vietnam War. Richard Nixon is president. 
the civil rights movement is still very, very active. And the civil rights leaders, almost to a person, were totally opposed to the expense of this space race that was created by the Russians with Sputnik. And um, here's a quote from Whitney Young, who was the head of the National Urban League. He said this at the time, it will cost $35 billion to put two men on the moon. It would take just $10 billion to lift every poor person in this country above the poverty level. Something is wrong somewhere. And this kind of objection is one that is true to this day, that somehow we can always find money, lots of money, for things having to do with defense and races against those who would pretend to be as powerful as we. But we're not ever able to find money for things like yeah, affordable housing, affordable education, affordable health care, infrastructure. That mundane stuff. In some ways, it was, ex in many ways, it was an extraordinarily uplifting event. It did make Americans feel a measure of pride again, as opposed to what most, I think, were feeling about. Vietnam, maybe not most, I don't know. But to see these three guys, these three men, to imagine the courage to sit atop <laughs> that huge, huge rocket to be blown into space and then to pull off a feat that had never been done before and to be the first sentient being to step foot on that planetary object, our moon. You know, the iconic photo of the footprint in uh, the moon's surface uh, is understandably thought to be the first footprint on the moon um, made by, by Neil Armstrong, but it wasn't. <laughs> That was a footprint made by Buzz Aldrin, the second man on the moon who had the camera. And a lot of the I, just extraordinary and iconic photos uh, were taken by, by Buzz Aldrin. Who always seemed different than the other astronauts and I think in some ways was. I had the extraordinary, um, and I'm sure I've shared this, the extraordinary pleasure of uh, being in his company for an hour <coughs> on my radio show a million years ago. And 
I found him just a delight. A regular guy. A regular guy. A lot of fun. And I must say, sexy as hell. I did. I had the hots for Buzz. I remember somebody telling me after the interview, you could tell you had the hots for him. How embarrassing. But, yeah. Two voices that were speaking out against this were two women against spending so much money on this. Two women. One, Pittsburgh's own Rachel Carson. She was appalled because she said, what does this say? We are despoiling our planet. And the idea, as she says, these far-fetched schemes she said, where man wants to take into his hands ill-prepared as he is psychologically the functions of a god. She thought we had made such a mess here that it behooved us to clean that up. Hard to, hard to argue with. Although there's always the, the school of, you know, you can do two things at once. And then Hannah Arendt uh, said that both the Americans and the Soviet Soviets making this race to escape from men's imprisonment on earth, which I guess were words that were used, we will escape the bonds of earth. And she said, nobody in the history of mankind has ever conceived of the earth as a prison. But we've made it a cesspool. It was Eisenhower who created NASA And he did something very, very important in doing it. He did not put it under any military rule. He made it and he said it will only exist as a civilian agency. And in his uh, farewell address just a few days before uh, John F. Kennedy would assume the office, Eisenhower, as you probably know, deplored the arms race with Russia and warned us of what he called the military-industrial complex. And he did not want our exploration of space to be part of that. Do you know that it's only been men who have been on the moon, right? No woman has stepped on the moon. But those who have have, um, where is it? I have it, I have it here. Those that have, all have had the same kind of reaction. And it's now been called, it's got a name, it's called the overview effect. That the few people who have been able to 
be outside the Earth. I suppose anyone who orbited the Earth as well could do this, although not quite, because those who've been able to get far enough away that they were looking at the Earth, and it looked, you know, like this, you could just pick it up, this beautiful blue planet. And the reality of of being able to have that perspective changes people. People who have witnessed our globe from space almost to a man say the same thing. Here's a quote from one. You spend even a little time contemplating the earth from orbit and the most deeply ingrained nationalisms begin to erode. They seem like squabbles. The squabbles of mites on a plum. The overview effect. You get the sense of the whole. The earth looks a vibrant, unitary thing. The rivers look, as one of them put it, like blood, like the veins that hold, that are bringing, I mean, people who've seen it say you see everything then in a different way. I was not aware that Alan Shepard, the first guy who ever sat atop a rocket in the United States and went up and then came right down, I did not know he had a later shot and was able to go to the moon, but apparently he did. And Alan Shepard, when he got there, said, if somebody had said before the flight, are you going to get carried away looking at the earth from the moon? I would have said, no, no way. But when I first looked back at the earth while standing on the moon, I cried. Here's some other stuff I've from some of these books that have been written about this. Just little factoids that are interesting. When Alan Shepard became the first man, American, to fly in space, uh, that mission was called Freedom 7, you may recall. And this is just a coincidence, but Freedom 7, which we all watched with bated breath, came just one day after the first Freedom Riders left Washington on a Greyhound bus headed to Louisiana to challenge Jim Crow. Freedom Riders, earthbound, on a bus, doing something potentially as dangerous to their lives as Alan Shepard, Freedom 7, was doing on that rocket. Juxtapositions. Here's some other facts which blow me away. You, I, I imagine, know the name Werner von Braun. He was an ex-SS officer. 
He was a Nazi in good standing, but Werner von Braun was a scientific genius as well. And he had been working for the Germans, obviously, during World War II on their efforts to produce the V-2 rocket. After the war, of course, we didn't think of destroying him. We grabbed him and said, you come do that for us. By the way, V-2, the V in uh, the V-2 rocket, here's another little factoid, stands for the German word Vergelten. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. And that word means vengeance. So the Germans were working on this vengeance rocket, von Braun at the head. It was all slave labor done by people in concentration camps. But von Braun was brought here and became an American citizen and jumped right into his work. Now just though for us. In 1951 he explained in trying to work toward nuclear weaponry and the ability to send it anywhere one wanted. He told the New Yorker in 1951, we felt no moral scruples about the possible future abuse of our brainchild. Someone else would have done the job if I hadn't. Now this is some, there it is, I so often ask how can the people who, the scientists, the researchers who work on a lot of this stuff, do they ever have pause about what it will be used for? They might be thinking, oh, well, we intend to use it for this and that, but look what it can do. And I don't think they ever do much. And it's always the same reason. Somebody else would have done it. Which is, of course, not a moral reaction or excuse or response. You might remember the witty as hell Tom Lehrer who wrote wondrous songs uh, during this period and he he wrote one about Werner von Braun. And I'll just, I don't know the tune, so I will just read this one verse. Don't say that he's hypocritical. Say rather that he's apolitical. Once the rockets are up, who cares where they come down? That's not my department, says Werner von Braun. Here's another factoid that blew me away. Edward R. Murrow. I, by the way, just rewatched that uh, that film about him and the McCarthy and taking on McCarthy, and I'm blanking on the name. And it was uh, it was wonderful, really worth watching again. But Edward R. Murrow left CBS. I didn't realize this. He left CBS to join John F. Kennedy's administration. I have no memory of that at all. And I'm not sure exactly what his job was, but he urged Kennedy to include a black astronaut on the moon mission. And here is what he said. I see no reason 
why our efforts in outer space should reflect with such fidelity the discrimination that exists on this minor planet. Amy's telling me the name of that. Yeah, the name of the movie is Good Night and Good Luck, which was his how he signed off on his show. It's wonderful if you've never seen it. So Murrow saw this wonderful opportunity to show that if we're leaving this earth, this earth we've mucked up, how about starting anew on the moon by at least leaving the racism behind? And something was attempted uh, Kennedy or somebody in the White House did say we'd like to make sure that there is um, a black uh, astronaut in this mix. And they found uh, a black Air Force pilot, Edward Dwight his name was, and he became the first uh, to be trained at the Aerospace Research Pilot School at Edwards Air Force Base, but he later wrote a book. And it was called Chasing the Moon. And his story says he was all but chased out of that school by the commander, by his commander, a guy whose name we know, a guy who we respect and revere for his courage, Chuck Yeager. Chuck Yeager. Yeager instructed the other trainees not to speak to Edward Dwight. So, I'm just saying... It's interesting to look back and to see that so, I don't know, things were never, are never really what they seem. I mean, the CNN piece on Apollo 11 does nothing to put it in the kind of perspective that a lot of these books are trying to do. I remember how sickened I was when Richard Nixon inserted himself into the extraordinary thing of these men standing on the moon with his phone call to them. This while he is so zealously making war in Vietnam as so many were dying and many, many more to die. <sighs> oh, thank you, Milton. He sent me a Tom Lehrer on Werner, Werner von Braun um, on YouTube. I'll make a point of looking at that. And... Um, Bria sent me something about women on the moon. Uh, it wasn't until 1983, more than, a, more than a decade after Armstrong and Aldrin took their moonwalk that Sally Ride became the first American woman to leave our planet. Since then, 49 women have been to space. And um, NASA, it says, is keeping mum about who the female astronaut who might step on the moon will be. So we're now talking about um, 
I guess Trump's talking about going back to the moon. I just want to say this. Why? You know, in a lot of ways, been there and done that. I, I don't know scientifically if there's a ton to be gleaned given the amount of expense required. I'm not sure. NASA now says it wants to get back to the moon in 2024 and that definitely there will be a woman aboard. I don't know that that's enough reason. I don't think it is. Do you? Again, we got a lot of stuff here that could use the money. All right, I really feel... Oh, let me... Um, let me... Where's that quote? I just... It's a quote from Thomas Jefferson that I came across. And it, it was about... Um, religious freedom and of course I can't find it I'll find it as soon as the show ends um, here it is and this is how wrong we've gone I mean because this is what I mean back in for God's sakes the 1700s at a uh, few centuries or so back. Hmm? This is what a president of the time would say, or a future president. It does me no injury for my neighbor to say there are 20 gods or no god. It neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg. That is Thomas Jefferson saying, who gives a damn if this person believes there is no God? What, what is that? What kind of litmus test is that? What difference does it make if this guy might think there are 20? 20? None? My God, I see in this way. Your God, you might see in that way. We were smart. We were in, these were men of the Enlightenment. Remember the Enlightenment? That is far gone now because I want to read to you something that blew my mind because these are words from people who consider themselves defenders of Christianity today. This is from a religious journal, First Things, by Catholic writer Sorab Amari. Too many conservative intellectuals have passively accepted the left's victories on issues such as same-sex marriage and transgender rights out of a misguided concern over civility. And that leaves the Christian-based moral order teetering on the edge of total destruction. Conservatives must fight the culture war with the aim of defeating the enemy and must impose their worldview, that's the religious conservatives worldview on the country by any means necessary so as to serve the higher good. Here's a guy named Ben Domenech writing in The Federalist. Progressives are bent on utter and total destruction of everything American 
Christians hold dear. We have reached a point in America where politeness and decency is no longer the best approach. And that's why so many Christians have embraced Trump's more brutal approach. Apparently, this is really something being debated on the Christian right. And the debate boils down to whether or not democracy works for them. This is dangerous stuff. This is stuff that needs to be, um, we need to be aware of. Michelle Goldberg, who is a columnist for the New York Times, uh, wrote about this. And by the way, she's becoming more and more my my favorite um, Times opinion writer. And she says, I am flummoxed by this debate among conservative Christians about whether or not liberal democracy's time has uh, passed and whether it's time to literally, it sounds like, take up arms. Do whatever you have to do. Defeat the enemy. Those are fellow Americans, the, the enemy. She says, I'm flummoxed by this. I mean, conservatives control the presidency, the Senate, the Supreme Court, (laughs) and Trump is installing dozens of far-right Christian judges in the federal courts. Nevertheless, these social conservatives, these Christians, feel apolyptically embattled. What really infuriates these people, she says, is that they now have to live in a society where their social and religious views no longer dictate how people can live. That has been their privilege. And when one is accustomed to the privilege of having that ability to dictate what is proper and what isn't, well, when that starts disappearing, it feels to them like oppression. In other words, giving people freedom to make their own choices feels to them like as if they are being oppressed. Because unlike Thomas Jefferson, (laughs) they can't look at somebody else who believes something different, who lives in a different way, and shrug and say, it doesn't pick my pocket, it doesn't break my leg. They can't. And I would argue again, and I will say this always, there are those on both sides of the spectrum, there are people on the left who would do this kind of thing too. There, there's so many people who have just an extraordinary need to control others' behavior. When it, you know... May I quote the Beatles? Let it be. Let it be. And they can't. I don't know. Hey, if you're feeling a little stressed, here it is. The the science has been done. Seriously, the science has been done. This is from the uh, Scientific Reports Journal. Um, Go out into a green space. Go to a park. 
Go to your backyard. Go somewhere where you hear birds tweeting, squawking. Go somewhere where you might encounter a squirrel, a rabbit, a deer, and not kill it. It is known and has been known that going into nature lowers your blood pressure, lowers your stress, makes you less likely to have asthma, allergies, cardiovascular disease. It makes your head better. It increases life expectancy. What's not to like about this prescription? Go out. And they've actually found how many minutes you have to be... <laughs> I'm always a little suspicious of these things when they, when they quantify. Okay, here's how many minutes you have to spend in nature to benefit. Okay? About 120 minutes a week. So what's that? Two hours. Just two hours a week. And it doesn't have to be in one. You can dole it out. Be out there. Um, and what they found, and this is bizarre. Because they, they had a huge group that they were looking at. It was men and women and older people and younger people and different ethnic groups and people living in rich environments and people living in poor areas, people even who were, had illness. And what they found is two hours. 90 minutes isn't enough. They found that. An hour isn't enough. 90 minutes isn't enough, and anything over five hours, it doesn't give you anything. So, two to five hours. And you get as much from two hours as you get from three, four, five. Two hours a week was the threshold for everybody. And this is increasingly understood by doctors who know what they're doing. So much so that I believe in, in England, they are, you can actually get a prescription from a doctor that says you've got to be outside, outside in nature. You have got to go out. In South Korea, the government is establishing what they call healing forests. Their citizens are, uh, are very stressed. South Korea has got one of that, you know, one of those environments like ours. And uh, so they're creating healing forests. So imagine you go into this healing forest and you just keep bumping into more and more stressed people. <laughs> that would not be healing to me. You know, the, the, the forest is crowded with, you know... Uh, Miserable, stressed-out humans. Uh, we have a call. Caller, go ahead. Hello. Uh, I was going to... I wanted to go back to what you started the show with. Cause I thought you were going to come back to it eventually. What was it? Forget. Huh? What was What did I start you with? Were talking about, you were talking about Iran. Ugh. And one of the things that never gets mentioned in all of this is that uh, Iran as far as anyone knows, has been is the signatory of the non-proliferation treaty uh -huh. and is allowed to have nuclear material. Yeah. And, uh, according to our intelligence agencies, hasn't had a nuclear program in 15 years to make weapons. So I don't know why that never gets brought up in all this discussion because some of the neighbors that are constantly threatening to attack them are not signatories to that treaty and are doing things that are at least as horrific. Uh, so, not sure why this... Wasn't Trump, gonna, always... wasn't Trump going to pull us out of that treaty? He pulled us out of a, that one one of the missile treaties with Russia. I'm not sure. 
not even. Oh, okay, yeah. There, as far as I know, yeah. Even if we are the inventory. We're not leading up to it because the treaty, and so we're in violation of it anyways. Because part of that treaty is that you're supposed to work to get rid of your nuclear weapons. Uh-huh. And I'm not aware of any yeah. thing we've been doing on that part. So uh, there are neighbors there that are not signatories, and uh, huh. so. Well, you know, it's it's weapons. That's at least one of them that uh, that actually attacked the United States not that long, like you know, it's twenty years ago. So yeah, it's literally (laughs) an incoherent uh, foreign policy, and as regards Iran, it is just—it's insane. It doesn't make any sense at all. No, it doesn't. It's complete, completely ridiculous. As far as anyone can tell, uh, is making the problem far worse. Uh, Without a doubt, they were adhering to that treaty that they were in. Yeah, I know. So like, it's just it's you know madness, madness. It's, yeah, it is. I mean, it doesn't help the situation that the discussion in the United States is so bizarro and leaves out half the story and half the facts. So I don't. I mean, I'm not saying that that's a particularly great country. I'm just saying I don't see how any discussion has helped on the matter if you're leaving out multiple relevant facts on what's going on in that whole area and et cetera, well, et cetera. So but, it just you makes know, everything that much more. It, it, it's like you're talking to a crazy person. That is correct, <laughs> and that's what Iran has said. I, how we're supposed to, what, what? This guy's insane. It's ridiculous. It's absurd. It's, it is. And the whole world is laughing. The whole world is watching this. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's beyond belief. No, I mean, the other, the threat, the the other part I find really irritating is that, you know, that there's the way he's treated in the press as if, like, there are things he's doing that should be taken seriously. I mean, other than that they might get us all killed. <laughs> I mean, but I agree with what you were with what you were saying yesterday. It's always a bunch of bluster followed by pretty much nothing. Yeah. So, yeah. But, I, and, and then until it the isn't. That we're talking about nuclear weapons. Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, until it isn't. It's bluster, and then he pulls back. It's bluster, and then he pulls back. It's bluster, he pulls back, until he doesn't. And who the right. hell knows? This is, he is scary as hell. It's, it's and, well, and he's surrounded by scary people. Because you know Pompeo and Bolton, and I'm sure there's others, just they're itching, itching to start a war. Right. The only reason they wanted uh, Bolton in there is because he's a known nut job. Like he was a nut job the last time yeah. he was in an yeah. administration, and he continues to be a nut job. Yeah. That's another person. How is it possible that they're taken seriously? I don't know. I mean, it should be just like every time you see his face, it should just have a big clown makeup on it because it's yeah. ridiculous. I like, hear you. These are not. These are not sane people we're dealing with. It. <laughs> hey, thank you. Thank you for right. the call. Appreciate yeah. it. Have a good day. Yeah. Bye. Sure. You too. <laughs> Um, oh wow! Mark has written and said that that Ben Domenech, that or whatever his name is, that I, the crazed Christian who you know thinks they should maybe destroy people like Ooh. us. That's Meghan McCain's husband. Oh my God! That's Meghan McCain's husband. He also points out that, you know, I've I've seen people saying, wait a minute, do you mean to say that those children that were being just extraordinarily abused by us in those shelters, we are paying, the taxpayers are paying $750 per child per day, $750 per child per day for their what? So they can sleep on a concrete floor, not have diapers, not be able to shower, have soap. What? So who's making $750 a day for this? Well, Mark's told me. It's called Caliburn International Corporation. And it runs shelters for thousands of these children. They charge us $750 per day. And as Mark points out, you could put these kids at a nearby Ritz-Carlton for less. Put them each in a $300, $350, $400 hotel room. 
Well, they get nice beds, clean sheets, showers, for God's sakes. And then he tells me that a former Trump chief of staff, which one? We've been through a few, is now on the board of this corporation. That's a big shock. I'm going to bet it's, uh, it's Kelly. Because he was head of Homeland Security and probably dealt with them. Unbelievable. God almighty. Well, <laughs> we're out of time. All right. Well, that's it. Don't know what else to say except help. I'll see you tomorrow. Lynn Cullen Live. Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at pghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers.